Good morning again. I, I don't know how often you do this, get the same speaker one week after another. I don't think they do that here because it's usually boring. So that's, isn't that the reason? Primarily, right? I don't want to bore anybody. Uh, I, anyways, for whatever reason, um, boring or otherwise, I'm here. And we get to study the continuation of last week, which I really, I found it kind of exciting, like really fun to speak on. And I'm wondering how I'm going to amp it up and get more excitement out there, because the next part's even better. This part, if you have to compare, is, is, is just more drama, more amazement, more stuff going on. If all I did was go through the passage and just kind of look at the details as I see them, we'd probably have a sermon. So I tried to get it a little more organized than that. There's a lot to unpack um, and try to make sense of this. But this is fun when you see what is in store uh, in the future, what the Lord is bringing along. Okay, let me see if this works. There we go. So this is our passage. You guys can go ahead and turn to Revelation 19 the second half, between 11 and 21, uh-oh, went too far, and this is what we're talking about. Jesus conquers the world. Uh, how does that sound? <laughs> how do you say it? This is what's happening. <laughs> it's, it's just, it doesn't even feel right, but it is. This is, this is what it's about. Um, Jesus rules the world. It's the climax of the book again. We, we talked about the climax of the book last time, so how come you keep we're still here. Well, we're still here, and it's going to go again into chapter 20 and into chapter 21, and it's just kind of all the way through to the end. It just gets bigger and better. Um, this is, I think, the main point of the book. Jesus returns and starts setting all the wrongs to right. This is the point of the book of Revelation. So it is the theme, the main climax, and yet it just kind of keeps getting bigger and deeper and better. And um, you guys remember uh, Narnia, the last battle? What was, the, what was the cry? Further in and further up. Something like that. But it's, it's, it's deeper and better and, and, and greater. And you just keep going in. Um, so that's kind of how I feel about this part. Probably how uh, C.S. Lewis felt about that as he wrote Narnia. So really neat stuff, really fun. We'll get into this. I, I, I debated on finding pictures and graphics and kind of expressing it, and honestly, there's nothing out there that's very good. So we're going to go with text, okay? And, and the pictures that I found, just not good enough. It's just not showing the depth. It's just not capturing. So we're going to have to use a little bit of sanctified imagination and work with the text here. This is the first section I want to look at, verses 11 to verse 16. So I'll go ahead and read this. It says, And I saw uh, heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies, which are in heaven, 
clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Really interesting stuff going on here, but let me just get those first four words out, or five words. And I saw heaven opened. So just, just hang on and stop right there. What just happened? Where are we seeing this from? Is this, is this John saying that earth got a glimpse into heaven? Just, just all peeled back and all of a sudden heaven and earth are going to mash together somehow? It's something like that. Um, it's, it's the beginning of a procession. It's the beginning of a military parade. But the curtains are drawn back, and you can finally see to the other side. You can finally see the eternal side of what's going on. You're finally seeing eternity, God's perspective on things. And earth is going to take a good look inside, but what they're going to see is the beginning of a procession, the beginning of a military parade as, as the king marches out. But heaven opened up. you got to stop there. There's, there's, there's something that we've forgotten on earth. We think reality now is so important to us, we've forgotten that eternity is so much more important. We've lost perspective of something. And now eternity opens up, and it's much more real than what you thought was so important for today and tomorrow and this afternoon and, and right now. We've gotten so caught up in the now that here comes eternity to collide. Heaven and earth are going to collide. Eternity is a real thing. And we get out, we get at least three titles for the king. Um, I'll get to that in a, in a second. But what's happening is, have you ever been to a, to a big parade? Back in the day, right? Country parades, 4th of July parades. What else do they have here? Have you ever been to a military parade? Yeah, not so much, right? You did it in Paraguay. I did them all the time in Bolivia. As a kid, you had to, had to march in them. All the schools marched past, and after the schools marched past, the bigger institutions, and then the military came. And that was fun, because they'd come by, and they'd have their guns on display. They'd have all the uniforms. They were in lockstep marching. They were doing all this. But as they went, every time you had a parade, they'd go by a grandstand, Okay, and there's a grandstand, it's, it's, it's dignitaries, invited visitors, and there's always somebody on a microphone there calling it out. And now we have the institution of the this or that, and their primary contribution to the city is, and they, it's just kind of a narration of what's coming by in the parade, but you get an overview of what's happening as well. What we have here is a parade coming out of heaven, and we're getting kind of the guy in the grandstand on his microphone, calling it as it comes out, telling you what he sees, telling you the official titles of who are coming, who is stepping forward. Now we have this person. Now we have that person. Now we have this institution. That's kind of how the, the parades work, and I think this is something similar then. Um, they're going to start reading out the titles of the king. They're going to start reading out uh, who's next in the lineup. They're going to read out how it's happening, 
as you watch it, it's, it's kind of, uh, for those at the end of the line, you're kind of, what's coming, what's coming? And the guy's calling it out for you. Something like that. So reading out the titles of the king, you start out with this conquering white horse. It says, out of heaven comes a white horse. You remember how Jesus entered Jerusalem? The presentation of the king on earth. But Jesus, the humble king, the God who became man and so humble that nobody could tell the difference between him and any other man. Nobody could say that this guy's special. And he didn't claim anything special, any glories on earth when he was here. So as Christians, we, we, we get this picture in our head a little bit. This humble Jesus. This, this man who, like anybody else, but, you know, they were nice to him. They, they, they made a little parade for him, remember? As he came into Jerusalem, little parade. They put him on a donkey. Wasn't that cute? They didn't have a, they didn't have a red carpet to roll out, so what did they do? They took branches and start putting it outside there. and People were clapping. People were getting happy. It was kind of, but it was kind of a goofy parade. It wasn't an official parade, really. Or was it? It was a real, he was the real deal. It wasn't a very elegant parade. It wasn't a dressed up affair. It was a shabby little thing and there's this, this, this donkey and, and the most amazing thing was that the donkey didn't kick him off. You know? It was the fall of a donkey. It was a young thing. That was the most amazing thing about that parade. Hey, look, is he going to get kicked off? Nope, he's still riding. Woohoo! All right, parade on, you know? And that was about it. But now comes the king from heaven, from his rightful place, on the conquering charger. This is the battle horse. This should be sending shivers up our spine. This is the real thing. This is the real thing coming from heaven. And as he comes, you start hearing the names, the names of the king. He is in heaven. He is known as the faithful and true one. Those are his credentials in heaven. The guy that never tells a lie. The man of truth. It's an interesting name. Um, on earth, he will be known. You can see at the very end of this passage, the big title that he's going to come and stamp on earth. King of kings, Lord of lords. He is going to come and stamp that title on earth. He is the king of kings. He's going to become the maximum authority over all authorities on earth. He's coming to conquer. In the middle, you get a couple of concepts of a name. One is a mystery, the mystery name that nobody knows. Uh, it's a little hard to point that one out. What does that mean? What is it? Uh, right away, it tells us about um, the word of God. And I'm not sure what the mystery name is, and I, I certainly understand a little more about the word of God. But, but the mystery name, I wonder what that is. And it may be a mystery to those on earth. It may be a mystery to, to humanity. Who is Jesus? You can ask people on the street, take a survey. Who is Jesus? Ah, uh, well, and you get this, this fuzzy idea. And to them, it's a mystery. They really don't know. 
They know about Jesus. They don't know who he is. But through the word of God, we have a pretty good idea of who he is, don't we? And if you take John's uh, interpretation of the word of God and how he uses the term word of God, we're talking about the power of creation. The God who's the, the, the Son of God who created everything into existence through the word of power. The words of his mouth. So, a little interesting. Um, you get three, at least three names mentioned here and maybe a fourth one that we're not sure what it means. So we're calling out the titles. Who is the guy on the horse? Who is this person? He's the king. On earth he will be the king in heaven. He is true and faithful like no one else. So as he's coming out, we get the narration. Why is he coming out? What is his purpose? And you can look right here into verse 11, and you see the purpose that he has. The purpose is going to be to conquer the rebels. He's going to conquer the rebels on earth. It says, he who sat upon it, called faithful and true, in righteousness he judges and wages war. This is what he's coming for. This is not a peaceful visit. This is not a diplomatic mission. This is conquest. This is war. This is judgment. We're going to set things right. You look at verse 12. Our narrator calls out, this is going to be the power that he brings with him. Look at his eyes. Look at the power in the eyes. Oops, that was too much power. Thank you very much. Look at the power um, in his eyes. Look at the crowns. Look at the authority on his head. Look at, look at what he's bringing with him. So we're calling out the amazing features of Jesus Christ as he rides out. Uh, we had uh, eyes of fire in chapter 1 as well, if you want to cross-reference. But it's, it's blazing eyes. It's authority. It's power in his person as he rides out. And you get verse 13. Look at the history. Who is this guy? Where does he come from? Everyone's coming out of heaven dressed in white. This guy's dressed in, uh, dipped in blood. Where do you get the blood on him? There's no death in heaven. This is the place of eternity. How does this man from eternity, from heaven, know about death? It's his history. It's the history of the king. He's been through death. He's risen again. He's the conquering king. This is the conqueror. Look at his name, the word of God, the creator from the beginning of eternity. Look at his history. He created what we see, and all that was not created by him doesn't exist, is how John puts it. If you don't see it, it's because he didn't create it. He created everything, everything that you can that you can see. The creator from eternity passed the redeemer with his robes dipped in blood. Uh, you could maybe say that the blood is going to refer to the battle coming up. There could be a reference, but I think it's his history. I think it's the history of the king. And now we got to read on a little bit more. Um, verse 14. We've been seeing who the king is. Who's riding the white charger? Who the main person in this procession is? But who's 
in the train that follows? Who else is in the parade? Who else is coming along behind him? And we see a whole multitude, the armies of heaven, a whole multitude dressed in white. It, it's just, they're all on horseback. They're all riding along behind him. It's a huge procession. It's a monstrously big procession, but they're all in white, pure and holy is the, is the way that this takes us. Um, let's see. Uh, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, we're following him on white horses. The emphasis is on white, pure and holy, clean, people who have been washed by his blood, redeemed by him. So we have heaven's angels maybe, yeah, I don't know if they've been redeemed, but they're, they're pure and holy. And then we've got Old Testament saints, mm, I think so, I think we have a resurrection and this is, this is my eschatology, maybe not yours, but I think we have an, a resurrection at this time that brings Old Testament saints into the mix as, as resurrected, as transformed uh, to take part in what is their inheritance, which is the earthly millennium. Um, then we have the church. The rapture of the church should have happened seven years previous. So now we have the church coming with Christ as a redeemed uh, bride, we've just, uh, previous chapter, we got to see that, that uh, marriage of the lamb and the church, and we got to see the, the, the really neat spectacle in heaven and all the hallelujahs coming out. So the armies of heaven are a collection and a group of, of redeemed, sanctified, purified. This is what heaven is made of in people, in terms of people, or in terms of Angels, are they people? Okay, let's call them people. Uh, <laughs> I'll get into semantics then. Uh, so then we have the rightful ruler of the earth. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads a winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the rightful ruler of the earth is coming, and there's a couple of things that he brings with him. Um, as he comes, the rightful ruler, you see the sword of his mouth, and uh, good luck drawing that. Um, you certainly can't take a picture of it. Uh, it's, it's certainly, it has to be more of a figure of speech than something you can possibly visualize. But really, why not? How did he create the worlds? Is he not the word of God? Was he not the word of creation? Was there not power of creation in saying, let there be light? And there was light. So the son of God who could create, can he not destroy? The word of his mouth can be the creating tool and it can be the destroying tool. No real difference here. No, no great leap in, in, in logic. No great mystery. It's simply the sustainer of all creation by the word of his mouth is simply spoken. And things will respond to his word, to his power, to the word of his power. So the word of destructive power. We don't usually see this from heaven. We've seen creative power. We've seen a good God. 
We see a, a kind, loving father. Uh, Old Testament saw a little more of this uh, in, in God. We saw God kind of coming down and say, uh, no, we're out of line. This and some destructive power was involved in, in what God did um, through the Old Testament. But here we see the Son of God, our dear Savior, but he's given the word of destruction from his mouth, and he can destroy his enemies just by speaking, just by speaking. So it might not be a flaming sword, it might not be a visible, but it might as well have been. It's the terrible destruction that's coming. It's the terrible destruction, just the word of his mouth. Look what he brings in his hand. He brings a piece of iron out of heaven. Who knew? Who knew they bothered with that in heaven, right? Why wouldn't he bring a, a scepter of gold? Why wouldn't he bring, I don't know, at least a piece of titanium? But he brings a rod of iron. It's, it's, it's super practical. Super practical. There's nothing glamorous about, about a rod of iron. It's not an ornate, carved, beautiful scepter of authority. It's not a magic wand which is the other concept maybe that some people have of a scepter. This is a king's scepter, but it's just a stick of iron. I think it's going to be the kind of authority that he's going to wield as he establishes his kingdom. A scepter is what, like as a conductor uses a little stick to conduct, the king uses his scepter to conduct authority on earth. And this is, this is what this scepter is for. Very practical, but it's very unyielding. If he had a stick, you might break it. He's not going to break this one. This is very, it's a scepter. But it won't be breaking, it won't be bending, it won't be giving way to a lot of things that, that you know, we're always trying to bend our rulers. We're always trying to adjust and make them more this way and make them more that way and corrupt them a little bit this way and uncorruptible, very practical, very straightforward. It's going to be one rod of iron, one rule for all, and it's going to work because it's practical, but no one's going to get to play with his authority either. It's a rod of iron. This is how he's going to rule. For a cross-reference, I'd invite you to just quickly take a look back at Psalm chapter 2. I've always enjoyed this psalm because of the irony in it. Psalm chapter 2. I have a I have a sense of humor that leans towards irony. And if you look at verse 1, you see what it's talking about. All these nations are going to talk against God. They're all going to band together. They're all going to tell God what to do. They're all going to force him into doing what he wants them to do. And then you get to that awesome verse where God actually laughs at them. He's not laughing with them. He's not laughing because it's funny. He's mocking them. God is scorning the nations, laughing at them, saying, you can tell me what to do. Are you kidding me? You're so foolish. That's what he's saying. And then you get to verse 9. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. So our rod of iron has already shown up in Scripture. And now we know who's going to be running that rod of iron. Jesus, the king comes from heaven to rule the nations. Um, 
Fascinating, fascinating. So this is just the military procession. We're just getting ready to see what's going to happen. This is just as heaven opens up, oh, look what's coming. How could we know? Well, we have this military procession written out for us, so that's very nice. I did find one picture here that I thought might be inspiring. Here we have a war challenge, a war challenge. Verses 17 and 18, and let me read this. It says, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God. Oh, this is going to be so tasty. In order that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. The meal isn't as tasty as we hoped, but this is the, the great supper of God. This is a war challenge. This is the war challenge. Do you guys remember uh, David and Goliath? And, and, and for I don't know how many days, Goliath keeps running out there and challenging Israel. I want a man to fight against. And there's no man to fight against. I want a man to fight against. When David finally comes out to fight Goliath, how does the dialogue go? Remember? Remember that dialogue? And I think it's 1 Samuel somewhere. You'll, you'll have to go back and look for it. Maybe 18-ish, 17-ish. Ah, that's close, close, close. So as he goes back, and as that dialogue, that, that pick-a-fight dialogue, how does that war challenge go, remember? I'm going to feed you to the birds of the air. Remember that war challenge? This is a war challenge. This is, this is how you start a fight. This is how you start a fight. I'm going to feed your carcasses to the birds of the air. I'm going to spread you out there. I won't even bother burying you. This is, this is some, some pretty vicious talk, pretty vicious talk. And there's an angel in heaven, and he doesn't even bother talking to the kings of the earth. He talks right over them, right past them. It's an insult to not even address them. He says, I'm going to, where are the birds? Start coming. I'm inviting the birds. We've got a big meal from heaven, going to be prepared right here, right where all these people are. They're going to be dead in a minute, and you guys can eat on them. That's the war challenge. A little spooky, actually. A little scary. Um, the carcasses of war are going to be fed to the birds of the air. And apparently, the birds will respond. God will, through his sovereign power, command this to happen. And the birds will be part of the cleanup crew. But apparently, there's going to be a lot of people trying to bury the dead and trying to just rid the land of so much gore and clutter and dead stuff. And the pollution that comes with it, about three days old, you start getting a little sick to your stomach. It's pretty gory. Um, just, just a little uh, forewarning here. Now, you look at the naming of the dead. This is another, another piece of the insult. As we name the dead, where it's not just going to be, you know, the foot soldiers that are going to be dead. This is not going to be... A rout of the army where 60% of the army manages to flee and 40% dies. The way this works, it starts right at the top and says, kings, commanders, the big mighty men, the horses of war, the different little ones, all the way down to the 
smallest little supply guys here on the war front. It's going to be total war, total destruction, total death. And, and that's, that's what's being called for in this war challenge. There's not going to be one survivor. It's a little scary. I, I, I'm always amazed at when I see lists in the Bible, and I'm always like, why do they make a list that way? Why not the other way? Why don't they start with the small ones and work it up? You know, there's only a few kings. There's a lot at the bottom, but they kind of start at the top of the pyramid, and they work down. Maybe the most valuable first, and they work down. And we have one great equalizer for all. They're all going to die. Death is a great equalizer. Actually, death is a great equalizer today. Do you know that in this room there's a 100% chance of dying? You knew that, right? We should have known that, right? We forget that. We like to think we have an 80% chance survival rate after your vaccine, of course. <laughs> you know? We like to think this way. We like to have our little numbers, but there's actually a 100% chance of dying. Vaccine or not. It's just the way, the way it goes. Um, this is going to be the great equalizer of death is going to come all at once for this army, this collection of armies. Multiple kings, multiple people. Let's look at who's on the battle lines here on earth. Who's down there? Revelation 19 and ni verse 19 tells us who's down there. And I saw the beast. We got to know who the beast is. We'll talk about him in a minute. And the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. So as the parade comes from heaven to earth, on earth to receive them, in full view is a massive collection of armies. A collection of armies. They're headed up by the beast, it's called here. And when we talk about the beast, we need to get the right picture. This is the Antichrist. This is the Antichrist, the world leaders. We can, uh, maybe if you wanted to look at who the Antichrist is, you can, you can look at verse uh, uh, chapter 13 of Revelation. It gives you a, a pretty descriptive picture of that. Uh, he's a world ruler. He's united a coalition and as whatever's gone on politically on earth, and there's some, there's some different theories of why these armies came together, um, whatever's gone on politically, he's united these armies against Israel and against Jerusalem as a hostile takeover, and then the king from heaven comes to defend both Jerusalem and to defeat and to take over the world. So we have, <clears throat> this, was, this was gonna... Uh, this is the one intent, humanly speaking, where God comes and just changes the whole equation and flips it on its head. It all is going to change in a blink. Let me take you, let me suggest a little bit of reading here. Uh, Revelations 16, and let's just flip back a few pages for that. I want you to see this. How did these armies maybe come together? What is this event on earth called? Uh, 16 verse 12 says, and the sixth, sixth angel poured out his, man, and the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up, that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east, 
Now keep watching. If you keep reading, you can keep reading straight through. But I'm going to skip up uh, to verse 14. And it says, For they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. And they gathered them, the kings, together at the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. That sound familiar? Yeah, that was not from the movies. That came from the Bible originally. Um, Armageddon, or Har-Mageddon as it's, as it's said in my <clears throat> version, is a place. It's a place of gathering the nations, of gathering the nations for a, a war against God from God's perspective. They may have gathered together for a multitude of reasons. That's where the evil spirits seem to come in and they've deceived and they've told and they've, and all sorts of goofy things have gone on to politically uh, manipulate and mangle the situation together. But finally, they're there for the great day of God, for the great challenge against God Almighty with his king riding a white charger coming out of heaven with a sword of destruction in his mouth. It's a pretty, yeah, pretty spectacular event. There won't be a day quite like it um, for quite a while after this, um, or hasn't been before, I suppose. There's one more verse I'd like you to look at, just to kind of picture this situation a little more, the whole concept of what is this Armageddon, what is the armies of the world's gathering together. So sneak back to Zechariah. You'll have to find it. It should be the last, almost the last book of the Old Testament, almost. Not quite. Malachi, I think, is our last book. But Zechariah chapter 12 has a little more to add on this. And and Zechariah 12 has taken it from a little different perspective. This is from Israel's perspective, from uh, the nation of God is, is in dire straits. They've got two big problems. One, they've rejected God. Two, they're surrounded by enemies. Who can save them if they've rejected God and they're surrounded by enemies? And this is apparently the situation in which we find this this passage, Zechariah 12, verse 8. And it says the following. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Who would that be? Seems to be a picture of Christ. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weepings over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. Like the mourning of Hadad-Rimon in the plains of Megiddo, which would be Armageddon area. And the land will mourn every family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself and their families by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself, etc. All the mourning that goes on. So, 
this is uh, uh, from Israel's perspective, from Jerusalem's perspective, as they face great rivalries and, and they realize as they see their king, as they see their king descending out of heaven, their hearts are finally turned back to God. There's finally a repentance, a true wholehearted repentance of, of Israel. The Israel that believes is finally going to wake up at, well, to this day, Israel is quite an unbelieving nation. It's kind of sad. They're, yeah, it's just neat that they're, that they're there as, as a country, but they don't know their God. They hardly know their history. I mean, academically, they know it. They're smart people, but they don't know the God who called Abraham. They don't know him personally the way they should as a nation. And now they'll recognize where they went wrong. They went wrong when they rejected the king coming on a little donkey. And now comes the king on the white charger. And they're going to turn their hearts to him. So this is, this is the scene out of Zechariah. It's a prophetic scene of repentance in Israel as they finally turn and recognize. And the, the hurt and the crying is because of their unbelief. Not because they're damaged by the sword of his mouth but because of their unbelief as they turn back. So let's move this along a little more. That's the battle lines on earth. And now we get to the main event finally. It's, it's, it's anticlimactic at this point. It's kind of funny because you get a lot of buildup here. And now two verses, summary, we're done. <laughs> it, it's not going to take long. Let's just put it that way. Verses uh, 20. Verse 20 says, And the beast was ceased, that would be the Antichrist, and with him also the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. And those who worshipped his image, those too were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which come from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Nothing new here. We already saw this. This was just executing. Um, in, in, the, in the text here, I added a little parenthesis there. It says now. Because uh, as, I, as I looked through some, some text, apparently this is different than just saying, and then so forth. This actually says now, as a surprise feature, we have something that wasn't expected in the battle line, in the battle plan. I think the expectation was that Jesus would kind of wage into the mix of it and start killing a few here and killing a few there and, you know, confrontation between two armies, etc. Instead of doing that, there's a surprise move. It's a, it's a decapitation move. Just pluck, pluck, got these two. Good. Now let's take care of this. We got two people. Um, the first one is, is the Antichrist. He's the world leader. He's going to be given a special judgment. This world leader is most likely satanically inspired. He's allowed Satan to run in him and to work in him. He's satanically inspired. He's united the world. And his greatest objective, his greatest pleasure is persecuting those who believe in Jesus. Those who believe in eternity. And the choice that he's given everybody on earth is obey me and I'll let you live. If you choose Christ, I'll kill you now. That's the choice he's given everybody on earth. 
And the way God puts that choice is, obey him and live a few more days, obey me and live eternally. And that's the way God puts that choice. So it's a really hard moment on earth for those who choose to believe in Christ during the time of the Antichrist. The false prophet is the other character that gets plucked up out of the middle of the army. These two people are plucked up, plucked out somehow. It's a, it's a surprise move again. And this is the miracle worker. This is the guy that paraded in front of the Antichrist, that kind of stirred up the, the popularity that um, he was a showman. He was the, the high priest of the Antichrist. He was the guy that would get everyone to worship him. He set up images all over the world. In fact, uh, this is where the 666 comes in. Apparently, it's his idea. And he starts saying, if you don't have this mark, whatever it is, electronic, branded, I don't know. We don't know. This mark of the 666, you can't buy. You can't have freedom of movement. And so he starts to restrict people with this manipulation. He's the great promoter. And, and, his, and his miracles are real. As, as best as we can tell, they're real miracles because they are not part of nature. A miracle is something that goes against nature. And he somehow can get power from beyond nature and do weird stuff. People are like, whoa, this guy controls something beyond. Apparently he does. It's demonic. That's the problem with miracles. They don't just mean they're from God. They could be from Satan. So careful what you believe in. We've got a war between heaven and earth. Well, look what happens, though. A new concept is introduced, something that the world has never really known much about. Well, we do because of the Bible. But there's a new concept introduced here. Everyone knows about death, right? Person dies, goes to the cemetery. Funny, doesn't weigh any less, but there's no spirit somehow. Uh, we understand death. We understand the place of the dead. We understand that we're burying the body and the soul goes somewhere. There's a few myths about how that goes and where that might be. And we call it hell. We call it heaven. We call it, you know, we have prettier terms than that always on the, on the cemeteries. We like to use the prettier terms, not the ugly terms. But we've got ugly and pretty terms for what's beyond death or the place of the dead. But now we have a new concept introduced from the king himself. This king that came from heaven has power way beyond. He just opened heaven up and a procession comes down to earth. Now he grabs these two characters and he opens hell up, but it's not hell. It's not just the place of the dead. It, I think it is open to view maybe. So that this whole multitude can kind of stare over the abyss into this lake of fire. And these two people get put in there, alive and kicking, into the lake of fire. So the world just gets a perspective of heaven. If it's up or down, I'm not sure, but there, heaven. And the lake of fire. You just saw eternity on both sides. That should scare you. Eternal death, eternal life. They both got opened up. Both doors. It's a fan fantastic picture. Um, it's a huge spectacle. A huge spectacle. I think it's open for view. 
it seems like heaven is open to view, and I, I think the lake of fire, at least, is open to view. And then the conclusion, all enemy combatants are killed, but it's just physical death. They're not cast into the lake of fire the way these two were separated for special punishment, okay? They're just killed, as anybody would die. It's just a normal death. There's nothing as scary as the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the scary one. This is just normal death, and they all die. And we conclude, as advertised in the war challenge, um, we have the birds of heaven coming down upon the enemy combatants, all these that are dead, all these that are laying out in the field, except for two bodies are missing. Those went into the lake of fire. Except for those two bodies, everything else is laid out. It's just a bunch of meat rotten on the field now. Let me take you back to Revelation 14 for a second and give you a, a little more on, this, on the carnage that, that is laid out here. Um, Revelation 14, verse 20 says, And the wine press was trodden. Remember the wine press reference? This is what the king was coming to do. He was going to press the wine press of the wrath of God. That's what we saw in the, in the um, procession. Now we see the wine press was trodden outside the city. Uh, that would be the city of Jerusalem down in the valley of Megiddo. Uh, and blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Okay. This is a little bit, it's a little bit thick now. This is a little bit, yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of um, gore, to be really honest. That just should kind of turn your stomach. But you can see this. The Bible's being as clear as it can. It's using nice picture language. You, you ever seen a wine press, right? Get all these nice little dry grapes in there. And then pretty soon they just open the tap and everyone starts stomping and pretty soon a little bit of this nice wine liquid comes out. It happens in a big vat. Um, but this is like God's wine press, except it's not grapes. It's just a warning there. Blood, up to three foot deep, at least. Up to the horse's bridle, depending how tall your horse is. Um, this is. This is a lot of gore. So... This is the passage, and it's, again, a bit, a bit much, isn't it? It's a bit much to say, wow, what, what has just happened? What is this about? This is a look at the future? I'm not sure. Um, I might have to go watch Terminator or something just to, just to kind of settle down. Um, what just happened here? What just happened? Jesus takes command of the world. That's what happened. That's what all the rejoicing in heaven was about. Jesus takes command of the world, and it goes through kind of an ugly scene right here. As he gets down there, and he, it's, it's, a, it's a by force takeover. This is a war. And after the war, he's going to set up thrones, and he's going to judge nations, and he's going to start establishing the good stuff, righteousness, justice, a straight path. A good world. A good world. So, we may, um, 
He's going to be recognized also by Israel as the true Messiah. This is going to be another great cause of rejoicing. Israel and God will be reconciled through Jesus Christ at this time. At this time, there's going to be a reconciliation between God and Israel. The nations will be judged. There will be a judgment on the rebellious nations. It'll be a, a mop-up, uh, not just of the battle zone, but a, but a clean-up of the world where justice is concerned. And true, the true king will be on the thor- throne. As God has intended uh, justice and government to be, it will finally be. Um, God is returning things to the proper order. Uh, what do we get out of this passage? Well, we're already with Jesus. We're coming in the, in the parade. We're in the parade. That's kind of nice, isn't it? It's nice to be in the parade in this case, um, rather than on the, on the battlefront. Uh, waiting for this mysterious king to come, we know who he is. We're with him. But do we? Because I, I, I think that maybe we've, maybe our picture of Jesus is, is, is cute. Oh, you know, Jesus is, is my buddy. He's my friend. Maybe we've got a cute idea of who Jesus is and, and our, our loving, humble friend who, you know, non-presumptuous, really nice guy, a teacher. He's our dear Savior. And even when we come to the Lord's Supper, we, we, we have this idea of a wonderful, meek Savior. And he was. Those are honest pictures. But maybe we didn't see this picture coming. Maybe we don't pay attention to this picture. This is, a, this is a different picture, same person. Same person, same Lord and Savior is also the king of the world, or will soon be. And we maybe didn't see this one as a powerful king. So I think we can grow in our understanding and our appreciation of who is the king. Do we know him as a king? And... I think there's a lot, of, a lot of comfort in this passage. For those of you who want to see all things put to right, for those of you who are kind of sick and tired of how the world's going, and kind of sick and tired, uh, I can't turn the situation around. But here we have hope, great hope. All our wrongs, all the things that are wrong with this old world are going to be put to straight, put right. Justice, righteousness will be on earth, finally. So, thank you very much. Should I pray to close? I think I probably should. Let's pray to close. Thank you, Lord, for um, your word for the study this morning as we look at Revelations 20 and a powerful chapter, kind of something that is you know, a little bit overwhelming to look at. But we thank you for it. We thank you for the comfort the encouragement that it brings to our hearts as we know that there is a plan and that we're not in charge of it. You are. And it's going to work. It's a great plan. And the whole world's going to stand up against it and can't stop God's plan. We thank you for uh, the picture of Christ, our Lord, our King, our dear Savior, who's also the King of the world. We thank you for this, this glimpse into the future. And we pray as we go now that we would be encouraged, that we would uh, rejoice in this day and what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.